boy's got utter belief in it. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Welcome to the world's best track and field podcast, the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. The 2022 USATF Outdoor Championships are in the books. What a meet. The big stars all rocked it and are ready to take down the medals at the home worlds in three weeks. Congratulations to Kerry Richardson, Cole Hawker, Clayton Murphy. I mean, Fred Curley, Melissa Jefferson, Grant Fisher, Cooper Tier, Evan Jager, and many more. And while everyone was paying attention to the U.S. trials, did you see what happened at some of those other national championships? The Italian champs. Marcel Jacobs showed he's healthy and won. At the Jamaican champs, Sherikin Jackson absolutely rocked it. 10.77 and 21.55 in the 200. At the British champs, Josh Kerr, though, lost to a guy in the B heat at Bree. The Kenyan champs, Faith Kip Yakin was stopped by Mary Mora. Could she challenge the Americans in the 800? And Asbel Kiprop, remember him? He's back, baby. He won the 1500. Oh, wait. That didn't actually happen with Kiprop. Plus, the other Robert Johnson is without a job. I still have my job, though, folks. I'm excited to be here. Hopefully, Shakiri lets me be a journalist for a few more weeks. She's not happy with the media. We'll talk about that and more. Well, then, a genetic t- equal and and brother is here. Jonathan Gall, good to see your face back. John, it looks back like you're back in Boston. Safe travels. Adjusted East Coast time. Hope you're ready to go. Yeah, I made it, Robert. I was on a flight out of Eugene on Sunday night. Seemed like everyone in American track and field was on that flight. Arian Knighton, Chris Fox of the Reebok Boston Track Club, Justin Gatlin, and Max Siegel. And yes, Max Siegel was flying first class. So I made it home in one piece. You guys were going through the litany of people on the plane, John, and I forgot. I, I think I went to bed or woke up. I saw some text. You're like, I'll, I'll tell you who's in, who's in first class and who's not. And then I had never heard till now. But of course, Max Siegel's in first class. He's the CEO of USA Track and Field. They used to fly private to the USA's. They've scaled back a bit. You know who was in my row? I was in the second last row of the entire plane. It was me and a sprinter from Kentucky. And Howie Kofleski, the agent extraordinaire, was also back there. So we had a nice little conversation. I think Gatlin and Siegel were the only two I recognized in first class off the top of my head. I don't think Knight was in first class. But I was thinking, I'm like, if this plane crashes, I'm not even going to make the article because there's going to be so many other famous people ahead of me. Thankfully, it did not crash. I'm glad that everyone made it back to their homes safely. But yeah, it was pretty interesting. Wait, John, that reminds me. Ladies and gentlemen, the Track and Field Writers Association had their annual awards. John, help me out with the name here of the award. I have it right next to me here. It was the 2021 Jim Dunaway Memorial Award for Track and Field Journalism Excellence presented to yours truly, Jonathan Galt of Let's Run.com. Thank you, Robert. Gave a brief little speech at the awards banquet. Thank you guys, Robin and Weldon, for taking a chance on me, hiring me as an intern in 2014 out of Syracuse. And I didn't have a ton of experience at the time. It was a bit of a gamble, but I'm very grateful for the chance to do what I do, to do this podcast every week, to 
go to meets, write about this sport that we all love. So, yeah, just wanted to thank you guys for the opportunity. I mean, John, you do a tremendous job. They reached out to us and said, can you make sure John comes to this breakfast? And I was like, oh, should I fly out there last second? And we love to joke around, but John, we think you're the best track and field writer out there. Only 31 years of old age. This is like the Heisman Trophy of track and field writing. Now, some might say, well, track and field writing isn't that big of a pond. Well, but- let's give the context here. Like, if you are a track and field writer for long enough, you will basically win this award by default because there just aren't very many of us. So, yes, I'm grateful to receive it. I received a lot of kind congratulations. People at the banquet said they enjoyed my work. But, yeah, I mean, it's not like they're pulling from tens of thousands of people and picking me. It's a pretty limited pool. But in in researching this, John, they had me write, write a little intro for you or tribute to you i had no idea ladies and gentlemen did you guys know that jonathan galt in 2013 won the jim mckay nca postgraduate scholarship it's given to one male and one female person who's supposed to be the future of sports journalism we have him right here working for let's run.com congrats john seriously Thank you, Weldon. Well, should I congratulate you? I heard you did pretty well in a Let's Run.com prediction contest over the weekend. Oh, we weren't even going to bring that up, John. What what, what do I always say, folks? Everything in life has to average out to be average. So when a running couple is running and one person's excelling, one person has to go down. When John gets the accolades, the highest, the peak of his career, just days later, John finishes 10th in our small Ivy League Let's Run Prediction Contest, he was near the bottom of the table. Weldon Johnson finishes 10th overall out of thousands of people in the prediction contest. So you were brought back down to earth pretty quickly, John. I hope I still have a job. Yeah, I don't know if you were too busy just drinking after the banquet award that you won. It was an early morning banquet. I hope you didn't go straight to the bar and use the Let's Run credit card, but... I was fine. I did run into one person at the stadium who came up to me, uh, Chris Donovan. If you're listening, Chris, it was a pleasure to meet you. And he said he, you know, he was like, "Oh, I was here to get my free beer, but it was at the stadium, and I didn't see him at a bar." So I, I don't know. Did they, I don't, does Haywood Field sell beer? I, I yes, probably, they I, do. I should have bought him a beer at the stadium. That was oh my, my bad. Gosh. Oh man, Chris, if I if I see you at the wall, it's like drag me to the concession stand, and I'll buy you one. That was my mistake, but. You know, it was nice to see some Let's Run fans there. And, Robert, I do want to say, though, your theory is two uh, running couples, they can't be running well at the same time. This is what you've long maintained. Well, I have two couples right now in the sport that are disproving your theory. The On Athletics Club, Joe Klecker, the national champion in the 10,000 meters, Sage Herder did not make the team, but she ran a very big PB of 158.30, she then ran 159 in the final to finish seventh. She's had a great year. They're both running very well. And then we had one couple over the weekend. Both of them actually made the team. A thing Mo, the Olympic champion in the 800 meters, she wins the 800. And on the men's side, her boyfriend, Brandon Miller, finishes third to make the team in the men's 800. So can you admit your theory is a fraud? 
There's a little bit of damage right there to the to the theory, but I think most struggled this weekend by her standards, John. Brandon Miller got stomped at NCAAs. Yeah. I, wait, I forgot. There's a third couple. Elise Cranny won the 5,000, and Sean McGordy made his first team in the 10,000. Team USA, we've, we've got two couples here competing, both making the team. I don't know, Robert. I think your theory's on life support. Look, the theory was originated between college athletes. I'm not sure how it applies to the professional athletes. Brandon Miller's a college kid. I think Mo's He's still in college. She's she's a professional athlete, and okay, he may soon okay. be falling. So, anyways, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we want to hear from you. 844-LET'S-RUN. Pick up the phone, 844-538-7786. If you didn't know what we were talking about, the free beer, if you join our supporters club and you ever bumped into Jonathan Galt, myself, or my brother, first beer is on us. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. And if you were a supporting club member, we would you would have heard us over the weekend on two different podcasts, both more than an hour long, break down USA's event by event. So if you want to hear that, join now and you can go back and listen to it on the archive. Because today we don't have time to go event by event, but we're going to have our big winners, our big losers, tons to talk about. It's going to be a kick-ass show. Um, where to begin, John? I have my big five biggest winners and my five big lose- biggest losers on my secret document here. Should we start with that? You... Yeah, let's start with that. I think that's a good place to start. Who was your biggest winner? Overall? Well, not just distance? Yeah. I think it has to be Fred Curley. For, for, I'm talking from the U.S. trials. I mean, th- there's nothing bigger in the sport than the men's 100-meter champion. We'll admit that. And he was fantastic. Only the second human being to run... And the nine sevens on the same day twice. Also makes the team in the two hundred. I think. I'm not sure if he PB'd or not, but absolutely amazing. That's the good news. The bad news is the man that he's on that list with, Asafa Pal. I don't think did Asafa Pal ever win a global gold. He did not. But Curly's got to be, I think, the favorite for the men's one hundred medal right now yes he has to be but that doesn't mean he's gonna win i mean last year we had a similar thing very fast u.s trials trayvon bromel won it in 9.80 he didn't even make the olympic final baker was second ronnie baker 9.85 he made the olympic final didn't medal fred Kelly was only third at the u.s trials last year 9.86 and he ends up taking the silver medal so my takeaway is, I mean, what Fred Curley did over those first two days, going 9.83, 9.76, and 9.77, the three fastest times of his life, all in a little over 24 hours, that was an incredible display of sprinting. It is a fast track at Haywood. Let's just say that, a fast straightaway. And you've got a couple other people. Johan Blake, the ghost of Johan Blake, has returned. He runs 9.85 to win the Jamaican Trials. When I heard that, it was one of the flow track guys in the media tent told me that. I'm like, you, you mean Johan Blake, right? Not Akeem Blake, the young Jamaican who's actually been running well recently. Like, Johan. This was his fastest time for 10 years. Now, he is the second fastest man in history, but normally you don't think some guy at 32 who hasn't been, you know, he hasn't been really at the very top of the world for the last couple of years, suddenly dropping a 985 out of nowhere. I was blown away by this result. 
So he's in the mix for Worlds, but so is Oblique Seville, who's the other young Jamaican who's run 986 this year. Marcel Jacobs, only 10.12, but we know he's a championship performer. The fact that he actually raced the Italian championships, that is a positive sign. So yeah, I agree that Curly's the favorite, but it's not a slam dunk. I wouldn't even be shocked. I mean, Bromel took a hit. His stock took a hit for me over the weekend. I mean, getting beat by Fred Curley is one thing, but losing to Marvin Bracey. Marvin Bracey's a very good runner. Don't get me wrong. World class. But, you know, if Tra- like, Trayvon Bromel needs to be beating him to win. I mean, obviously, he needs to beat everyone to win the gold medal, but to get only third in the U.S. trials, I thought that was a step back for Trayvon. Definitely step back for Trayvon, John, but I think we need to remember last year at the Olympic trials, who looked like a gold medal favorite? Trayvon Bromel. Fred Curley sneaks on the team. You go to the Olympics. There was a little more time between, but we go to the Olympics. No medal for Bromel. Curley, Olympic silver. So a lot can change and with three weeks, I assume the hundreds the first weekend as usual. So less than three weeks, these guys, you'll know who your world 100 meter champion is. And the Johan Blake thing, it's crazy. He has not run this fast. Do you guys want to guess a year? Well, I already said it. It's 10 years. August 2012 was the last time he ran this fast. Yeah. I mean, that's nuts. And this was his, his results this year. Now, granted, some of these were into obscene headwinds, but he hadn't broken 10 seconds before this meet. 10.57, 10.25, 10.64, 10.45. All right, some of those were massive headwinds. But 10 10.15, 10.11. 10.11, 10.11, 10.11, 10.11. And then in three rounds at the Jamaican Championships, 9.93, 9.98, Did he discover the Fountain of Youth? Is Ponce de Leon's long quest finally over? Like, what is happening? Maybe he's going the Justin Gatlin route. Did you say Justin Gatlin was on your flight, John, in first class too? Yeah. And I assume you didn't see him, but he did some of the broadcasting this weekend. I, I don't know what he's done before. I assume they just didn't trot him out for the first time at USA's. Well, I heard some of the broadcasts because I was in the airport on Thursday. No, it was yeah, Thursday. That's when I was flying into Eugene. So I had to watch some of the heats. I'll just say I wasn't impressed by what Justin Gatlin did on well, from what I heard from Justin Gatlin. Wait, what? No, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought he did an excellent job. Similarly, with same with RG3 a couple weeks ago. Justin had clearly done his research. He just didn't rest on being a former world champion, just showing up. He clearly did some research. I mean, I saw him commenting. I don't know why they have him commenting on distance races. That's That's a problem, yeah. That makes He's- no sense, but... If you're a sprint guy commenting on distance races, he was sort of giving generic insights in a way that didn't make him sound uninformed. And I mean that in a complimentary way. I found him to be surprisingly good. I didn't get to hear him actually talk about sprints. But some of these past athletes have been so bad on some of these USATF broadcasts. I I thought Justin may have a future at this. Okay, maybe yeah, maybe I only I didn't hear him the whole time, so maybe I just called him. Yeah, I, I think I heard him one heat at the steeplechase or something. You know, I wasn't didn't hear him for very long. I did. I, I wasn't impressed by the part I heard, but that's good to hear. If he was, 
you know, we, we need qualified voices now. You know, I guess you don't want to get, we don't need to get into the doping suspension, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, that, that's my take on it. We never talked about RG3 a few weeks ago. I really enjoyed him on the college broadcast. The enthusiasm, the kind of the one-liners, the nicknames. I also like the fact that he was paying attention to what he was seeing in the races. I think a lot of times broadcasters are just throwing, some of them are just throw out stats. They're not really watching the races. Now, it was clear to me he doesn't really understand distance running at all, but he was trying, like, I didn't care that he was making mistakes. He was enthusiastic. Like, I could probably talk to him for 20 minutes, tell him more about distance running. But even some of the distance people don't understand distance running. Like, it, it drives me nuts. Like, on this broadcast this weekend, like, the, the men's 5,000 goes off. And they didn't realize what Hillary Bohr was doing. I'm like, he's rabbiting the race for his brother. How do you not realize that right away? So, anyways, back to this 100, you know, the Marcel Jacobs thing. I started a thread about this. Like, he runs... 10-1-7 in the prelims, 10-1-2 into a headwind, not minus 0.9. And I thought this was a good sign. He's healthy enough to run twice. Last year, remember, at the Italian Champs, he doesn't break 10 either. He runs 10-0-5. That was on July 4th. Less than a month later, he won Olympic gold. He never had broken 10 flat last year until July 9th. Now, that was 23 days before Worlds. This race last weekend was 22 days before Worlds. So he's a little bit behind, doesn't have quite as much time. And I started thread and let's run. Like, what do people think about this? And I think that the best comment was someone's like, he's got amazing sprint technique. He's a brilliant. They're saying that he really looks good. He, he runs his proper technique form. But they're like, I think he can get back into the nine eights. We'll finally find out this weekend because he's running in Stockholm next day or two because it's a pretty loaded field. But it doesn't look like nine eights may be good enough to win. So I thought that was a good take. Even if he gets back to his form from last year, if he had a little bit more time, you know, maybe he could do it. And I did throw this out there. This is a guy that likes to compete. He's not afraid to lose. But I'm like, would it shock anyone? This would be negative if he skips worlds and just goes straight to Europeans. I really hope not. It would shock me. This is a guy, he showed up to world indoors this year when he didn't want to, when he didn't need to. You think he's just going to bail on the world? That no, would be the weakest did, move ever. No, I don't see, no way. So, but, you know, one thing about these times, and it, it, it's really amazing this year, we've got 10 guys at 9-9 worldwide or better, 9-9-0, is, I think it's a little bit hard. I mean, this Fred Curley's a plus 1.4. The Ferdinand Amonyala 9-8-5 is a plus 0.2.0 at altitude. But if Eugene's the fastest track in the world, you know, this Johan Blake 985 may be just as good as Curly's. Like, if the track's worth, like, 0.1, like, maybe, and if, if the Eugene track is faster than Tokyo track, if he could just get back, what he win in last year, John, 980? Yeah. Like, maybe that 980 is a 976 in Eugene. So maybe he gets the track that puts him in. It's going to be a really fascinating men's 100. Um, yeah. So Curly was my biggest winner at USA's. The biggest loser, it has to be the Tracktown USA myth. I really wish I had had the guts to write the article after pre, but can we all admit that the Tracktown USA put every meet in Eugene has already failed before we even get to Worlds? And it was clear this weekend. Like, 
the crowds were one third of what they were the last time the world championship trials were held in Eugene. There's Eugene fatigue. People don't want to go to the same city. Like, look, track fans are being smart. It's very expensive to go to Worlds. It's very hard to get to Eugene. The tickets are a lot. People can't just fly out to Eugene and then fly back three weeks later. There really aren't track and field fans in America. Let's be honest. There's some diehards. It should not be hard to get 10,000 people to go to one big meet a year in America. But to get them to go to two or three and fly to it is very difficult. And one thing I think Max Siegel doesn't understand, perhaps because he is flying first class, probably has chauffeured cars, is how hard it is to get around in Eugene. I was talking to a top college coach. He's like, look, we have contacts. We can get rental cars. There, We have travel NCAA travel agents. There's not a single rental car in Eugene. Zero. They had to rent an RV. Robert, here's my concern is, yes, this, this is what happens when you have all the meets in one location, is the people who would fly out for one meet a year, they're choosing to prioritize the world championships, which makes sense. And there have been a number of people who've reached out either via email or Twitter who said the same thing to me. But the reason we would default to having all these meets in Eugene is because in the past, there was a core base of fans who would buy essentially season tickets. They'd show up. They would track fans and they would say, I'll be here for the Pac-12s. I'll be here for NCAAs. I'll be here for USAs. They would go to every meet in Eugene. This was the thing that they would do. That's why you're able to draw an average of 9,600 fans for the 2015 USAs. It's not 5,000 people who are choosing, oh, I'm going to fly in for one meet. It's going to be the USAs. You've got a few thousand people who are fans in, based in Eugene or the surrounding areas who have come to every meet. And for some reason, whether it's because they're getting old or because they don't like the new stadium, I don't know what it is, that we seem to have lost 2,000, 3,000 people based in Eugene or surrounding areas who no longer come to the meets. And I don't know if that says anything about the largest sport in America because I don't think this meet would really draw much anywhere anywhere else, but we've lost a, a core section of the Eugene fan base that would make these attendances respectable in the past. Look, I said this a couple of years ago. I'd done some math to compare it. I thought the faithful, I used to think it was four or 5,000. I think it's two or 3,000. Yes, those are the people that didn't like the new stadium. Plus, it's expensive. That didn't used to be like this. I don't think the season tickets include all these events. But now that everything's on TV, it used to be, there'd be one or two events in Eugene. Now there's a... Even for them, they're supposed to go to the high school nationals, the pre-classic, the USAs. No, it's it's too many. Like the idea, I, I said it last year. Why are you putting the trials there? The, 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 absolutely not. The U.S. championship should not have been in Eugene this year. People don't need to practice running on the Eugene track three weeks before. It should have been somewhere else. Put it in Austin. Put it in wherever. I don't think the crowd necessarily been bigger, but it just. Could have gotten some locals to drive in, maybe. Just would have been a different set of people. But I don't want to spend the whole show on this. But I've got lots of ideas. Yeah, we don't need to spend the whole show on this. We we harped on this at NCAs. Like they used to get about five thousand for an Oregon Twilight, or maybe more back in the day. But recently, they've gotten five thousand. The local fans weren't there. There's only so many fans who are going to travel. They're going to go to Worlds this year. That's what happened. But after we harped about this at NCAs, Tim Layden. Formerly of Sports Illustrated fame, now with NBC Sports, he wrote to me 
The thing about the finite number of Eugene track fans is they all either grew up with Prefontaine or watched him run. And that was a mighty long time ago. Like newspaper and book readers, they're dying off. I don't sense they're being replaced. And I think that's true. I remember one time, last time, I don't know, when I, at Eugene's, I saw these really old people. I'm like, well, there's a lot of old track fans. So what are old people not going to do? They still may be afraid of COVID, that sort of stuff. But well, yeah, let's we, give away tickets to kids. Try to get as many people in the seats. I mean, think creatively. I know they want to sell tickets, but if if we're not going to fill up the fans, try to encourage another generation, make it entertaining as hell. We keep saying beating a dead horse. It's just like anything with the internet. Back in the day, there wasn't that much to do in Eugene. Track meet and come to town, you'd go. Now you can watch any movie ever made on Netflix. You can watch any sporting event ever made on the internet. So, or you can save money and just stay at home and bitch and complain that you're having to pay $10 to watch it on, on USATV.tv instead of having to pay $50 to be in person. So, you know, that, that that's just the reality of the situation. Well, one other thing. I actually think the attendance is going to be pretty good for Eugene. I don't think all the morning sessions will be sold out. So I'm saying world championships. But I do think the evening finals will be well attended. The final days, I, I bet we'll see a number of sold-out sessions. I am fairly optimistic about the attendance of the World Championships. Yeah. I spent 20 minutes yesterday going to the ticketing site and just looking at the day, starting at the last day. The evening session, like last day, basically totally sold out. Then, you know, most of the other days are, I only did like four. Most of the evening sessions are it's almost, I'd say, at least 75% full. So it's going to look full. Um, but the, I, I just don't want to see the article of like, oh, it was an amazing spectacle. It was so good that we put it in the U.S. We're going to kick the ass in the sport. No, you got, I mean, John, we were talking to the Europeans in, in Belgrade. They were excited to come to America. A lot of them had never been to America. They wanted to do a summer vacation, et cetera. So the fact that you, this, without a doubt, now, you know, in China and Russia, John, they were busting kids in to the world. So it wasn't like there was a huge crowd. Probably did the same thing in Doha as well. Um, but without a doubt, this will be the lowest attended world championships in history because the stadium is so small. I mean, well, it's, it's not, are we sure about Doha? I know the last few nights in Doha were pretty full, but that stadium was not huge. I think it was a little over 30,000 and they were not close to selling it out for the first few days there. So oh, I, but, <laughs> 30,000 times five is 150,000. That's going to be more than Eugene puts in. I mean, yeah, I think you're right about that. But that's also due to stadium size. Anyway, enough about the attendance. Robert, to me, I don't know, I'm going to interject on your list here. I Did you have Shakari Richardson as one of your biggest losers on the meet? I think we have to talk about her. This is a woman who is supposed to be the future of U.S. sprinting. She was entered as either the favorite or favorite for second in the 100, possible medal threat at Worlds. She doesn't even make the final in a sprint event. I think she has to be one of the biggest losers of the meet. I guess, John, it's, it all depends on how you want to define biggest loser. Like, in the short-term, performance-wise, absolutely, Shikari was a loser. But I'm thinking I was going to have a long-term, she might be one of the biggest winners in this meet. I mean, like, yeah, she was expected to do really well running-wise, and she didn't do that. But long-term, like, this woman's almost Teflon proof. Like, Weldon Watson ESPN show yesterday, they did a 23-minute segment on her. So when she actually gets good if she ever gets good and does something on the global level the media is going to be loving it oh she carries back from the ashes it was the marijuana 
suspension. That didn't get her down. And then the injuries and the year she didn't make the worlds. That didn't get her down. She's a fighter. She's almost like the Kardashians. It doesn't matter what she does. She's going to, she's popular. So if she ever rises up, they're just going to write this triumphant story about her. But I think she's actually, hopefully is going to learn an important performance lesson from this. Like, look, if you want to be the fastest woman in the world, you can't just be serious about the sport for two months. You can't go to Jamaica and have a lover's quarrel. You can't be focused on having cosmetic enhancements done to you. You need to be focused on training and track and being at your training base, working out. And if this was a hard lesson she needed to learn, hopefully she's learned it because, you know, the talent is there. What I always say, the talent doesn't go away. She's got a charisma of magnificent people like, despite this woman makes mistake after mistake after mistake. And everyone still loves her, loves her, loves her. So long term, I think she's even going to be bigger if she can ever get her act together. That's the million dollar question though, Robert. Can she get her act together? She's had two years now. Last year, heavy favorite to win an Olympic medal or to at least make the team the marijuana suspension. She doesn't end up going to Tokyo. This year, clear favorite to make the team. Totally bombs out in the first round of the 100. We don't have an explanation still as to why. You know, will she be able to look at this and evaluate, hey, I need to make some changes. I need to make track a bigger priority. You know, is someone going to step in and, and help her? Because I think she needs some help. Or is she just going to let things continue like this? Because we've seen big talents get squandered in the sport. And I really hope that doesn't happen. She's a tremendous talent. One of the best this country's ever produced in the sprints. She has a very bright future, but she needs to make better decisions moving forward. And the other thing that's nice for Shakira is look at the age of these other women, though. This is the biggest thing she's got going for her in terms of 2024. She's was born in 2000. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price was born in 86. She's 14 years older. Sherika Jackson, born in 94, six years older. Elaine Thompson-Hare, born in 92, eight years older. Like, she's significantly younger than these women. I agree with Robert in terms of performance. Long-term, this might be good for her. Get your butt kicked. Look in the mirror. Because she's popular, she's a huge social media following, but there's a lot she needs to learn. Some of her her behavior, it's not the, it's, everyone says she's a role model. The fact she speaks out certain things you want to emulate, but a lot of her behavior is pretty, because uh, she can't say it, it's pretty disgusting. Did you, I mean, you say she's Teflon. I just saw this thing on YouTube today. Did you guys see her Instagram yesterday? No. No, I did not. She's essentially flipping people off, showing essentially her privates or her her ass, excuse me. She rolls over and tells people to kiss her butt. I don't know if it's been removed or if it's just a 24-hour thing. People on YouTube are commenting about this. I mean, that's not the behavior of a role model. So from a professional standpoint, and also she, she speaks out to the media, that sort of stuff lectures the media. We have that whole thing we can get into in a second. But I think a lot of that, the person who barks the loudest sometimes is scared. She needs to learn some life lessons. You're going to have setbacks. She has tremendous talent, tremendous ability. God gave her a gift. She's not afraid to speak her, her mind on social issues, which is a great thing. But she's got to harness that power, I think, in a slightly more positive, constructive way. And, and not just face the media when it goes well. Well, the, when I said she was Teflon, I didn't mean that she personally doesn't get affected by this. I mean the media. Because well, I can't, like, like if I flipped off the crowd and showed my private parts on, on the internet, 
I would be crucified for it. I'm afraid you're going to be crucified as a white male for just even barely criticizing her at all. I'm just saying nobody criticizes her for behavior that normally would get you criticized. But can we talk about this comment that when, you know, she doesn't speak to the media, it's weird. She's someone that loves the media's attention. She, she dresses flamboyantly. She wants us to pay attention to her. She wants us, she wants to be a star, but then the race doesn't go well for her. None of her races really go well for her. She lets up before the line, the 200 doesn't make the final. And then doesn't speak to the media about her actual races. And then, then, then she does come back into the mix zone and give a statement about how the media needs to be more respectful and blah, blah, blah. And the reality is there's really no validity to this, right? I mean, there's a great tweet out there. Well, then you you found it. Yeah, we talked about this on the a little bit on the podcast Sunday, but let me just play the clip. Shakari avoided the media all weekend and then bombed out of the 200 semis. And then about two or three hours later, after the 200 final, she came out and said this to all the media gathered. Do whatever you want to do with it. I'm coming to speak, not on just my behalf, but all athletes' behalf, that when you guys do interviews, y'all should respect athletes more. Y'all should understand them coming from whether they're winning, whether they're losing, whatever the case may be. Athletes deserve way more respect than when y'all just come and throw cameras into their faces. Understand how an athlete operates and then ask your questions. Then be more understanding of the fact that they are still human, no matter just the fact that y'all just trying to get something to put out in an article to make a dollar. Thank you. So that was that statement. Texas Runner Girl was there in addition to John. She's a longtime Let's Run.com poster, helps us cover some events. She reached out to Susan Hazard, the USATF communications manager, and said, hey, you know, is there anything going on in particular that we did, you know, we can do better? And then Shakira came over and talked to Texas Runner and essentially said that she, when she saw Gabby Thomas crying after an event, that sort of prompted her to go out and say something. In the Gabby Thomas interview, she got, I think, eighth place in the 200 finals, said she has a hamstring injury. It was just emotional raw. But no one was rude to Gabby Thomas. It was just her crying, expressing the emotions of the moment. But then Shakari said, you know, thank you to Texas Runner, gave her a hug and showed that there was humanity on both sides. And I think the one thing Shakari needs to realize is the media is trying to do its job. And the tweet, Robert, that you mentioned. Yeah, I found it here from Hayden Herrera, who I think is a Eugene TV guy. Shakira Richardson returned to the mix zone. She said she was speaking on behalf of all athletes and said the media needed to treat athletes with more respect in here. I've been here all four days and I've yet to see any journalists in the mix zone act inappropriately. And I totally agree with that. I think that the media is always getting a, a you know, bad, obviously I'm a member of the media in this case, we get a bad rap. The perfect example of this is a story that's come out today. Richard Obert of the Arizona Republic. Um, this is a very sad story. David Allen's dad, dad actually died over the weekend before the men's 110 hurdle final. And the Arizona Royal Public became aware of this. They contacted Mrs. Allen on, sounds like on Saturday. She confirmed that he had died and, and kindly asked that nothing be reported of it. We're not even sure if Devin Allen knew that maybe they're trying to not tell, tell him. Um, but the reporter held the story until today which was the right thing. And I think it was great that Stephanie Ross, Texas runner girl, you know, asked Shakari, Hey, is there anything we can do? Shakari gave her a hug. So props to Texas runner girl. Like, 
I, I've never really seen anyone go. It, all John wanted to ask her was, hey, Shakari, you know, after the 100, you've been running pretty well. It must be difficult. What do you think went wrong on there? If you phrase the question, a difficult question in a nice way, hopefully they can answer it. Right. And I'm just going to make a point here because Kyle Merber pointed out on Twitter, after making her statement to the media, Shakari said, I always have time to talk to my black queens and stop for an interview. And that was with uh, Jasmine Todd and Serenity Douglas and a couple other women, uh, black women, at the end in the mix zone in Eugene. And to me, I think it was a good development in track and field that we have more voices of color. We have more younger voices. We have more female voices in the media space because for a long time it has just been white men, particularly older white men. So that is a promising development, but I also don't like the idea of athletes just choosing to talk to one segment of the media because they didn't ask her about her performance. And I think that's what a lot of fans of the sport wanted to know about. When you're an athlete and you're calling for respect from the media, it's a two-way street. And I think, okay, maybe Shikari might have a beef with me because of that tweet I sent out. Again, I didn't get the chance to talk or apologize or even ask if she had seen it, anything like that. If she has an issue with that, that's fine. And I'm sorry, and we can try to work that out. But if you call for more respect, but then you're not actually willing to engage with the media and build that relationship, that's on you. I can't do anything about it if you're not willing to at least engage and start to create a relationship. And I know it's not quite the same because the, the, the whites are in power in America historically have been. But can you imagine if, if a white athlete said, I always have time for the white reporters? But it's a completely different situation. So that's not a good analogy. Earlier, Robert said I listened to a 23-minute segment on ESPN about Shakiri. Actually, it was a 16-minute segment on Fox Sports. Speak for yourself with host Marcellus Wiley and Emmanuel Acho, who, like myself, like Rojo, is from Dallas, like Shakari, is from Dallas, Texas. Actually went to our high school, St. Mark's. And they not only were t- talking about Shakari not making it to Worlds, they were talking about, they played this the clip that I, we just played, about her saying the media needs to have, treat people with more respect. So I'm going to play a short segment from this, so you guys can get a taste what they're talking about. And I believe to your point, yep. I think Shakari is just going to continue to have to understand you cannot get the glory and not be willing to take the blame. Mm-hmm. Both of those come with the sport. Whether you like it or you hate it, they both are necessary for the sport. Say it, say it, say it. And for your, your emotional state, for your mental health, for, for the joy of what you're doing right now doesn't sound real joyful and joy joyous when you see someone every time they lose they go to this same move this is her this is her move now when she suffers she's going to tell everyone to be nicer to her what i decode from that is basically be nice to me when i lose because i'm still going through stuff well you're in the wrong business because if you're not at the top of that podium we got questions for you and they're not going to be flattering from the silver medalist on down that's just the way it goes so To help her is something that I use in my life. I add up those with me, not against me. And trust me, I'm always going to have a number count of those with me, and I'm always going to have a number count of those with me. 
against me. That's a good quote because I think that she does have more people with her, way more with her than against her. So just focus on the positive. It's just like less fun. No one likes to hear anything negative about them. Enough Shakari talk. We've got a lot more to talk about. It was an amazing weekend. But overall, my biggest winners besides Fred Curley, Grant Fisher, amazing performance, 13 on three meet record. Cooper Tier, U.S. champion in the 1500. Evan Jager, I love that. And to be honest, but just performance standpoint, I'd say the 400 guy, the runner up champion, Allison, right, John? I mean, huge PB, half a second PB, but I can't be sexist. Those are all men. So maybe if I'm throwing a woman, Ajay Wilson, I thought was, was a big winner. And the biggest losers, Clayton Murphy, Cole Hawker, for sure. Though, the, you know, I mean, I guess Hawker's injured, but Murphy, that was, oh man, if he was 400 of a second better, I would be thinking, could he possibly win the gold? Cause I think that 800, it's kind of wide open. We don't know what's going to happen there. And then, you know, maybe Gabby Thomas, but she's injured too. So I think Sinclair Johnson has to be added as a winner because oh, yeah. we knew she was right. There we go. That would be my biggest winner. Thank you from, from the woman's standpoint. How did yeah. I miss that? 359 uh, and a 403 or 404 race. She's a medal contender. She looks spectacular. And it looks like she may be dominating this event in the U.S. level for the next decade. Well, it's interesting because we kind of have said that a few times, though, about women's 1500 runners. Once Jenny, once Shelby Houlihan wins her first title, we're like, oh, this is her event for the next decade, right? Then she gets the positive test, the suspension. She's out of the picture. Then Ellie Paria St. Pierre, now Ellie St. Pierre, arrives on the scene. She wins, dominates, in fact, the U.S. final last year. We're like, this is her event. You know, she's going to be owning this event for the next few years. Then she's a distant third in this meet. She had to outkick Carissa Schweizer just to get third place. So now we're thinking it's Sinclair Johnson, but I do think Sinclair Johnson could have some staying power because she's got that kick. That's something that Ellie, per- Ellie St. Pierre doesn't have is a really world-class close. Sinclair Johnson's is getting there if it's not there already. She's only 24 years old. I do think this could be her event. She could pile up a number of U.S. titles just with her obvious talent when she won the NCAA title, one of the fastest times in history. And then that 59-2 last lap, I expect her to win multiple U.S. titles in this event this decade. That's a good point about the kick, John. But women's run races, do we ever have tactical 1500s? It's not like men's running, hardly ever, right? What? This race went out in like 76 minutes on the first lap. Global level. Uh, It is not as common, but I'm trying to remember. 2017 Worlds was, that was not a super, super fast race. 2015 was basically an 800 meter race. I don't know if you want to call it tactical because they, when they went, they went, but it, it depends. Oh, I had my notes a little disorganized here. Forgot. Biggest winner, sprint side for the women. Melissa Jefferson, 10, eight, two. And she's a year younger than Shakiri. So, you know, she may not be quite as talented, but she's pretty close, right? Yeah. I mean, she's, she ran 10, six, nine with a two, nine win. Shakiri's run 10, seven, two wind legal. I think Shakiri's the bigger talent, but Jefferson reached a level. She was on the eighth at NCAA. So, she reached a level we had not seen from her yet, and I think she could keep improving as well. So, yeah, definitely a winner there. All right, a couple other developments I wanted to talk about. Women's 800, 
we talked about this on the post-race show and we said how great a race it was. So, I mean, anyone who watched that, it was clearly one of the races of the championships. RJ Wilson hanging with the thing mo, passing a thing mo with about 30 meters to go and then getting repassed. Great result for both of them. For Wilson, it shows she's very close. For Mo, it shows she can be challenged and respond like a champion to that challenge. So I was impressed by both of them. But this event is very n- nicely poised now heading to the World Championships because you've got those two. You've got Raven Rogers, who we know is going to be in the medal mix year in, year out at these championships because she can run down anyone for that bronze. Whether she can get up for the gold conversation, we'll see. She wasn't really that close in Eugene this past weekend. But you've also got Keely Hodgkinson, who's been having a good season, the Olympic silver medalist from Great Britain, and new challenger entering the ring, Mary Marah, who wins the Kenyan Championships. She beats Faith Kipyagon, the Olympic 1500 champion, to win the 800 there, runs 157.45, and then she comes back the next day and wins the 800, sorry, wins the 400 in a Kenyan record of 50.84. So she is absolutely in that medal mix as well now. And I think, you know, I think Mo has not been as dominant as she was last year, which maybe isn't as good for a thing Mo, but it makes the world championships a lot more interesting. I definitely wanted to talk about Mary because I was impressed by her 157 and I knew she had a 400 background. She had to run a 51.7 like two or three years ago. So that's kind of Keely Hodgkin level speed. I didn't even know that she came back around the 400. So I was thinking this is definitely a woman that's going to be in the medal hunt for sure. I was thinking she's, you know, might be ahead of Raven Rogers right now, but you hear those numbers and you think, okay, it's, you know, it's what we said on the show the other night. Like, I think Mo's not quite in the same form she was last year. 156. Oh, last year at this meeting. Now she's 157, you know, there's a number of women that have shown this, the ability. They're going to run at least 156 in Worlds if it's fast. And I think she's one of them. The 800 and the women's side just going to be amazing at Worlds. And John, I think you alluded to it. Before, we kind of thought, oh, this is a two-woman race and a thing might just run away from everyone. She might be a couple steps better than everybody. But she was, what, half a couple inches better than Ajay Wilson at USA's. I mean, it was a tremendous race. In each round, Ajay Wilson looked great. She looks like the old Ajay, the woman who was the most consistent non-DSD woman for the last decade. I mean, she looked great. I, I, I still don't know how she didn't win this race. She came from behind, got ahead of a thing right before the finish, and then a thing showed greatness and somehow got back ahead. But I think any three of these women could win the gold. John, Raven Rogers has such a sick kick. Maybe somehow with everyone at Hayward, with her on the tower. If you believe in storybook endings, somehow I, I can't 100% even rule that out. So I think the 800, it, it might be, and it's on the final day. It might be the women's distance is the bit I'm most looking forward to at Worlds. Yeah, should be sensational. Now, I wanted to also talk about the men's 1500 because Robert mentioned Cooper Tier as one of his big winners. And I agree, absolutely. Pretty much all the other big names in this event really struggled over the weekend. 
you know, Yard and a goose with, with no centro, no angles, Cole Hawker bombing out in the first round. We're thinking, well, Nagus is, is definitely on the team, right? He's been running great. He was an Olympian last year. Well, he ran great in the Portland Track Festival. Before that, you know, kind of been hurt, hadn't been doing anything. I don't know if it was because he missed some training or whatever, just a bad race. He was awful in this final. He was only 11th. So Kubatia wins it. He actually gets it done, and in a tactical race as well, which even he admitted he wasn't really hoping for that in the final. He's a guy, he doesn't have a lot of experience in tactical races. He's very good at running fast in time trial settings, but he delivered. I, I was very impressed by him to come from fifth with 200 to go to win this race in 345.86. John Davis of Illinois goes from sixth at NCAAs to second at USAs. That was crazy. Then Josh Thompson, Johnny Gagaric, also on the team. But I think Fatir answered the question, how can he do in tactical races? He's passed the first test. It's going to be probably... More tactical and the you know maybe maybe it won't be tactical the way the event's been going at Worlds, but in the at least in the first and second rounds, I think you'll have to work on positioning a little bit. But this was really encouraging for him. The question I have though is would Kubatier have made the British World Championship team? Because this was not the only World Championship trials over the weekend. We also had the UK trials in Manchester, and they were absolutely loaded. The order was this. Jake Whiteman, 329 guy, wins it in 340.26. Second is Neil Gawley, the 2019 champ. He went, He's second in 340.38. And then we have a very close battle for third. Josh Kerr, Olympic bronze medalist, edging out Jake Haywood, who was an Olympic finalist last year, for the third spot on the team, the 340.63 to 340.66. And I talked to a coach who said, after that race, he thought that the top four of that field in Great Britain, any one of them would have won the U- U.S. trials on Saturday. Robert, you seem to disagree with this take. I mean, my question to you, would would, Col- would Kupatia have made the British team if he's in the U.K. trials? Absolutely. We talked about this in the other podcast the other day. I let it go without doing much research. But the reason why I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast was I was trying to piss off the fake Josh Kerr. I love it when he calls in, but... I mean, Josh Kerr barely made this team. Well, maybe they would have given a wild card. Was the top two automatically go and they can pick the third? But Whiteman wins the trials easily, 340.26. Then Gurley, 340.38. Then Josh Kerr, 340.63. And Hayward, 340.66. Now, folks, let's let's think about this for a minute. Gurley was in the B heat at the pre-classic. He was in the 1500. Cooper Cheer was in the A heat. And guess who he beat, John, in that meet? Guess who he beat? Can you look he up the results? Jake Hay- he beat Jake Hayward by a whopping 29 hundredths of a second. You made my point. How much did Josh Kerr beat Jake Hayward in this race? .03, John. .03. Okay. So Cooper Two different Teeter, kinds of races, I'm just saying. Well, we should look at the splits. But I, I think Cooper Tier. I, I think Jake Whiteman is, is really good. I thought he had a shot at Olympic gold last year going into that race. I was stunned that he didn't get a medal. I thought he was the best Brit. I think he's the best Brit this year. Um, this is why I think it's not without the realm of possibility that Cooper Cheer does medal at Worlds. I don't think it's likely, but I think he would have, well, because he beat Kerr, man, so tough. I'm not, I love Josh Kerr. 
I remember thinking, why aren't people signing him? Like, how do you end up at the Brooks Beast? Because this was a big time talent. He has one off year a little bit, one off NCAs, and then the Nikes of the world let him pass and go to Brooks. So I, I think, well, that's the reason why they have the race. They would have if he was if he is in this race. They have five studs. It's tough. That's what makes it so great. But Robert, here's your point with using these comparisons of oh, he beat him by point blank, and then that guy beat that guy by point blank. So Kubatia beat John Davis by point one five. Okay, John Davis was sixth at NCAA's. If Kubatia runs that, he would have only been fourth in the NCAA final if he's point one five ahead of John. John Davis. You've got to take race context into account. And look, I am I'm taking not... race context into account. I'm taking into contact that Cooper Tier is the class of this field. He's a 350 guy, but he's not a tactical guy. This is a guy that is not supposed to be good in this type of race. He did terrible positioning in the last lap and got himself boxed twice in the last lap, and he still beat everybody. He's significantly better than everyone in the U.S. field. And I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, why is he letting it go slow? And I thought, you know what? When he ran that 800 in the B heat, he still looked pretty good. He can outcrack these kids and these B teamers in a, in a slow race, and he did. So we'll find out in a couple of weeks. But I guarantee you, Cooper Tier beats at least one of these Brits at the World Championships. Okay. Well, I'm just you're saying. Okay, he beat all these Americans who aren't very good. All these Brits would have done the same thing. They're all at a much higher level than all these other Americans, other than Cooper Tier as well. So just saying, like, oh, well, he beat who he was supposed to do beat. I'm sure the Brits would have as well. You're giving you're giving Neil Gawley crap because he was in the B heat of pre, which he couldn't control. Yet he still ran 3:34 there, which is basically the same as the 3:51 that Cooper Tier ran in the Bowman Mile. It's pretty much the same performance, Robert. And well, Neil Gawley's saying, been running really well this guy. Year. Are you allowed to just say that Cooper Tier had no chance? I think he would have been. I I debatable. don't think had no chance but i you're saying he definitely would have been on that team and i just think that's a ridiculous statement you're not giving enough credit to the brits they had three guys in the olympic final last year jake haywood's a 333 guy an olympic finalist he ran, he just ran 351 at pre he's not a scrub and he's not making the team like josh Kerr, okay he hasn't raced that much this year but he's the olympic bronze medalist and then goalie's been running great and jake whiteman's been running great like i think whiteman is better than any of the Brits or Americans right now, I think we can all agree on that. But you're just saying, oh, Kupati, he definitely would have beaten these guys. Maybe. No, I'm not saying... I think he could have gone fifth in that race. I'm just saying, I let you say the other day that, that Cooper Jr. had no chance against these guys. That's not That's the not- case. Neil Gurley, after pre, went over to Oslo, and he ran the Dream Mile, John. What, did he, what was his time in that Dream Mile? Why don't you look that up? Well, I know what it is in my head, but I'll let you do the research. Okay, he ran 3.52. 0.93, correct? 0.91. Okay, and Cooper Tier was 3.51.99, so Cooper Tier was a minute, a second faster. Okay, okay, but I just, I compared the races, they ran on the same day. Cooper Tier ran 3.51 on the same day that Neil Gawley ran 3.34. That's the same performance, Robert. I'm not, I don't know what Cooper Tier would have done in the Dream Mile. He didn't go over there and run it. So you're admitting that Cooper Tier could have been his highest second in this race. Yes, I am. I'm also saying he could have been fifth. I don't know what would have happened, but you're just out here acting like, oh, he definitely would have beaten these. This is a ch- tight championship tactical race where positioning actually, pro- well, it mattered in the USA's, but he smoked a bunch of guys in America who would have gone smoked by all the Brits. And I just think- All I'm he- saying is I don't want some guy disrespecting America's best guy. Some Brit- some British guy you're talking to, Evers Tex. Is this guy you're texting you British? 
Can't reveal my source here, Robert. Oh my, it's probably Jake Whiteman's dad. It's not Jake Whiteman's dad. This is embarrassing. You guys are like bickering over like four hundredths of a second and who ran this. I mean, I apologize to any podcast listeners still listening. But big picture, this is the type of race I thought Cooper Tier loses. I mean, props to him for winning it. I thought, okay, can he run a championship race of any kind? I had no idea. So there's doubt. Okay, if I'm going to take it a step further and definitely drop when he can't win, I say a slow race where you're kicking like 51 seconds to last lap. That's the exact race he won. Now, having said that, and what was he with 300 to go? What place was he in? I'm thinking of the prelim. He went from eighth to first. With 300 to go in this race, he was sixth. Yeah, sixth. Still pretty good. But I'm like, whoa. It's hard to run much faster than 51 seconds. John, what did what did Sintra run in that Olympic final? That was 50 point. And that might have been 50 point low. But it was definitely 50 point something. The winning time, and the winning time was 350. But he closed in 50. But I, I, I'm just so amazed that he closed in 51.9. Okay, but then Jonathan Davis... You know, barely scores at NCAs, 52-0. Josh Thompson's got a great kick, 51-7. Everyone's running 52.52.15. There's even some guy named Brett Mayer back in seventh place who actually closed faster than Cooper Tier. He ran 51.85. Now Tier was boxed a bit, but like Brett Mayer should, the guy should have given himself a chance, man. Brett Mayer is, ends up 0.52. From winning this race, winning this race. I mean, like I never even saw the guy on the screen. I mean, point five two. It's actually a smoking in a fifteen hundred at the end. If, but the good thing for me is Cooper Tier showed he could make it. Could he be competitive against those British guys? If you're saying he could be competitive against a three twenty nine guy, an Olympic bronze medalist, I think he's come a tremendously long way. Robert may be giving him too much credit. I wouldn't have been surprised if they all beat him, but. We're open to the possibility he can run with those guys in a championship race. Okay. I think there's a good chance one of those guys medals or decent chance. So does that mean Cooper Tier can medal? I think there's an outside chance. Timothy Cherry got beat at the, at the Kenyan trials. He's not the same as he used to be. So it's in, let's talk about this. How many medals do we think Team USA is going to win at Worlds? Well, I think. I think you could probably get two in the women's 800. Uh, I feel pretty good about that. You know, we did say Murat and Hodgkinson could prevent, could break them up. Women's steeple, maybe you get a medal, but I don't know about that because we've already seen two sub eight women this, sorry, sub nine women this year, Winfred Yavi and Nora Gerudo. And I think Emma Koba and Courtney Ferrex, you know, Courtney Ferrex got spiked in the final. She was really worried about her shoe almost falling off. I think you could get one medal there, either Ferrex or Coburn. Probably not Wayman. I think Wayman's a year away from reaching that level. Women's 1500, Johnson might get a medal. I don't know if they're going to get any medals on the men's side, though. I don't see them getting one in the 800. I mean, the 800's super wonky this year, so maybe Hopple can slide in there for a medal. But there are a bunch of you know, there's now five sub-144 guys. I don't see it in the men's 800. I think Tia has an outside shot in the 1500, but I don't really see that. No medal in the men's steeplechase. 5K and 10K, 
I mean, maybe if you get a specific race situation, but I think the number will probably end up being three. And I think two of those will come in the women's 800. I agree with you, John. I think four would be great on the women's side. I don't see any medals on the men's side. Yeah, Hopple could sneak in there, Tier could sneak in there. But some time trial race, do you guys think Grant Fisher or something? But we better get two. I'll say that much. They might get one in the marathon. I don't think, I mean, I don't know anything about Rupp, but the way Rupp's been running this year, I don't see anything on the men's side in the marathon with Kabat and Colin Mikau. The women's marathon, I think they could get one between Sarah Hall, Emma Bates, and Molly Seidel. Sarah Hall's form since... You're joking. You're joking. You're joking. All right. First of all, Robert, this is the same man who laughed and mocked me when saying Molly Seidel could medal in a hot championship marathon last summer, and then within 24 hours was totally forced to eat his words. Do you do you forget that that quickly? This is not a Chicago marathon winning time 217. This is a world championship marathon in Eugene, Oregon. It's going to be hot. It's going to be sunny. Absolutely, an American could sneak in to get a medal. Emma Bates could. Molly Seidel, if she gets her TUE approved and she's competing, I could see that happening. I'm not saying they will, and the chances are probably that it's less than 50% that they do medal. But that's a strong team America is sending. I think they absolutely could medal in a championship marathon in the marathon. Look, I will confess to having slept in during the women's marathon during the Olympics because I thought we had no shot. But we're not meddling there. But I, I lost my train of thought just because I, I thought that. But I think you guys are selling one person completely short here. Well, first of all, Emma Cobra. Well, 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 I know what I was going to say. It's not going to be hot in Eugene at 6 in the morning, John. Give me a break. So it's going to be cool conditions. How cool is it there in the city? It's 6 a.m. Races it are at was, 6.30. Most days, it was fairly manageable. I mean, it was, it's still sunny, but yeah, not like br- brutally hot. I think it'll be like 60 degrees max. These Americans will be dropped before 30K in both races. Maybe Rupp will be up there. Oh, that's not, I'll take that bet. That's not happening. There'll be one American in the medal threat, medal hunt with 30K to go. Maybe two. And how cool would it be? I just thought about this. I'm always selling us short in this event. Women Steve, Emma Coburn. I want her to get that American record. I want her to get that sub nine for the first time. She deserves it. She just des- deserves to be the American record holder. Courtney Fryerks has run 857. If you run 857, you're probably going to medal in this thing. Yeah, but Courtney Fryerks hasn't been close to that form this year. No. But I'm look, saying Coburn's capable of that. If Fryerks is capable of it, so is Coburn. I think that they get two in the 800, and I think they get a third, either one of the steeplers or Sinclair Johnson in the 1500. But I don't see any other realistic medal opportunities beyond that. Robert, am I wrong with that interpretation? Probably not, but look, Grant Fisher's medal chances, I think he's got a good shot in the 10,000 meters. The 5,000 is so loaded, I don't want to go there. I mean, you've got two Kenyans at 12, I mean, the Kenyan trials are so good, Ever Chesler didn't even try this year. He didn't even bother to fly over there. He just said, nah, n- no moss. And you got two 1240 guys. You've got Chepta guy. You've got the Ethiopians. Admittedly, you don't have Bregan in there but because the, the, the Ethiopians are so stupid, they won't let you meddle. And by the way, Ethiopians put Sagai in the 1500 uh, 
Sinclair's medal chances go in on that boat. In the 10K, we both, will you admit, John, his, his odds, best odds are in the 10,000. I mean, he finished higher in the Olympics there. He was fifth. Then he did the 5,000. And it's just not quite the same. Like, okay, Chapter Guy's going to be there. We know that, right? Chapter Guy, Borega. Okay. Borega's pretty damn good, too. Erihu Aragawi, isn't he doing the 10,000? No, or see, this is what I'm saying. He's doing 5,000. So, okay. Aragawi, who would be, last year, Indoors, when Fisher started running these fast times, people are always going to medal. He's better than he was last year. I said, yes, but the problem is there's a possibility that the guys ahead of him are also better than last year. And my number one example was Baharno Aragalvi. He was fourth in the Olympic 10,000. He's much better this year than he was last year. He crushed that pre-Fontaine field in the 5,000. But the Ethiopians are so dumb. Um, I'm pretty sure he's just in the 5,000. So that's taking one guy out. Also, Jacob Caplimo beat him last year. Jacob Caplimo hasn't raced in months. Nothing since February, 57, 56 at the RAK hat. So two of the four guys that beat Fisher may not even be in this, or apparently aren't in this race or aren't in shape. Um, um, now, Ronex Caprudo did not make the Kenyan team this weekend who medaled in 2019 Worlds. So those are three of the better guys. Now, Kibot Candier, the world half-marathon record holder, did make the Kenyan team. So, but if this guy was any good at track, you think he would have run a world before the age of 26. You know that Kibot Candier had never broken 28 minutes on the track until this weekend? That uh, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, he's mostly the world guy. Wait, are we sure Aragawi's not running it though? He got third at the Kenyan at the Ethiopian trials in the ten thousand. The list when they sent out that list, he was only on the five thousand list. Okay, uh, yeah, like I agree that'd be a mistake. Okay, you've actually told me it. I said earlier I don't see a realistic medal opportunity for anyone else in other events. I do think it's realistic for Grant Fisher to medal in the ten thousand. It'll still be tough to do so. I do agree this is his better shot versus the five thousand though. Robert, you got to remember he was fifth in the ten k in Tokyo. He was ninth in the 5K, but he barely even ran between the two rounds. He was dealing with a calf injury. He was not 100% for that 5K. So I think he would have finished higher. But yeah, I, okay, I'll give you that. I think Fisher has the strength to medal. I don't know if he will, but given your analysis there of the guys who might be missing or that we don't know about, 10K, his 10K odds actually might be pretty good. Then the one other guy I wanted to mention, Donovan Brazier. He is the reigning world champion. He only ran one round at USA's. He ran 146. He won his heat. He didn't look amazing, but he looked better than I thought he would considering he's missed some time recently with Bursitis. We know he's super talented. He can turn things around very quickly. And the 800's kind of a mess this year. So do we think he has any shot in a medal if he, you know, assuming things go well, let's consider best case scenario. He's able to keep training for the next three weeks. He has no setbacks. I think he's probably the best opportunity for, well, him or Hopple. His ceiling's definitely higher than Hopple, but I just don't know how close to his ceiling he's going to be. We should remember that Hopple got fourth in the world, last world, when the quality of running was much tougher than this year. So we can't totally rule him out. But at the same time, that was just, everything went really well for Hopple at 2019 Worlds. In terms of Brazier, John... Yeah, he looked all right, or maybe better than I thought. It's a really weak 800 year this year. He's the defending world champion. But I feel like we know how this works out in running, right? 
how often do people go who limp into a world championship, not 100% healthy, pull it off? Just doesn't happen in our sport, I feel like. I don't know. Maybe Cesar Scaprudo does it. Who? Most other athletes don't. Cesar Scaprudo? 2017 and 2019. Nowhere near 100%. Limps in. He won the gold both times. So you're saying Evan, J- Evan Jager's got a chance now, John? No, because <laughs> Evan Jager is not as good as Cesar Scaprudo. But I'm just saying, those are two guys I remember in recent years it happening. Wait, what well, can Cesar Scaprudo run at the Kitten and Champs? He made the team. And he's run 808 this year. So I guess he's got to be a threat. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was thinking with Hopple, like he's not fast enough. I'd forgotten this during COVID. He ran 143.23 at Monaco. Wow. I've totally forgotten that race. But, you know, the 800, I don't think, I think Weldon's right. Frazier is such a talent, but it's going to be tough. But, I mean, the 800 to me is interesting in the sense of, just no one's really crushing it. But did you guys see these results at the Kenyan trials? Like, so Emmanuel Wagnoni, the world junior champ from last year, has finally lost a race. He runs 144.01. He got spanked by Wycliffe Kenyamal. But there was no, I mean, Ferguson Chariot was 11th. Michael Cerrone, 9th. There was no manual career anywhere in this thing. The Olympic champion. He has the buy as the Diamond League champion to Worlds, but yeah, I don't. I'm not going to expect anything from him. And Noah Cabet, who was the silver medalist indoors, I think he was only back in eighth place, so he might not. It doesn't look like he's going to be on the team. I mean, look the the Kenyan team; those guys, the all the guys who made it, are going to be a threat. Like absolutely, Wayne Yoni, he could still have. He got second, but he can still absolutely win. And same with Wycliffe Kenyamal. He was he won a couple of Diamond Leagues last year. Those guys are absolutely capable of winning. They're also capable of missing the final because they're not. I don't know. Wenyoni's been pretty good. I feel I I mean, do you who do you think is the favorite right now for the world championships? Is there a favorite? Max Bergen, obviously, John. Yeah, I was about to say no, there is no favorite. It's wide open. And in terms of manual career, I think we'll have a much bigger picture come Thursday. He's running in Stockholm. So Stockholm Diamond League Thursday. It's not uh, well. I say it's not the greatest deal, but you got Benjamin Robert in there. He's won one forty three seven. Got a Diamond League win in Paris. So if career can you know hold his own versus him, like the eight hundred is just so wide open. I'll, I'll put him in the mix, but he's only run one forty six this year. I was kind of kidding about Max Bergen, but only halfway because he crushed everybody at the British trials this weekend. 144-54, beating Daniel Roden by over a second. Kyle Langford third. Elliot Giles, 147, I mean, two and a half seconds back. Like, that's a beat down. Yeah. I, look, he's not the favorite, but could Max Bergen... He's a good leader. Could he win Worlds? Yes, he could. He's the world leader at 143.52. Very impressive performance of the British Championships. Yeah, he, he's in the medal hunt for sure and could win a gold. And then one other guy, look, he, this guy's not in the medal hunt, but I think we need to give him some props because this might have been the unlikeliest American to make a team this weekend in the distance events. Jonah Koech, who 
entered the world entered this year. He did not have the world championship standard entering the meet. He'd only run one eight hundred outdoors, one forty six nineteen. He'd never finished five, higher than sixth at NCAA's for UTEP. He'd never made a US final outdoors before. He runs one forty four seven four big PB to get second and hit the world championship standard, and now he's on the team going to Eugene. That was a huge breakthrough performance. And it's interesting because when he came into the NCAA, I remember Robert and I were very excited about him. He'd run 146 back in Kenya as an 18-year-old in 2015. And then that fall, he finished 11th at NCAA cross-country, 10,000 meters. So insane range, insane talent. We're wondering, is this guy going to take over the NCAA? And was basically overlooked the next couple of years because Emmanuel Courier and Michael Cerrone were dominating at UTEP. And Coach never really improved all that much at UTEP. But now he was at the District Track Club last year, he ran 145. He moves to Colorado for the U.S. Army WCAP team this year. He's down to 144 and he's on the World Championship team. So quite a journey for Jonah Coach to the World Championships. Yeah, I remember when he started at NCAAs that first fall. I think I was talking to Dave Smith because Dave Smith at Oklahoma State thought he was, might get in. He's like, oh man, I missed out on that guy. And then he didn't. He kind of got overshadowed by career. And then what other name who might win it, John? I mean, I don't know who would be the betting favorite. It'll be interesting when the British bookies put out the odds. Marco Ayrop of Canada. He crushed the field this weekend at the Canadian Champs running 144.39, beating Brandon McBride 145.15. So remember last year, Goes out in the Olympic semis and then he wins pre, wins Lausanne, then kind of came back down to earth, Paris and Zurich. So he's not, it just, none of these guys are consistent enough to do it. He did make the world's final in 2019, he was seventh. So, well, we're missing race. one thing from this season that hasn't happened and normally always happens is the Nigel Amos, like, ridiculously fast Diamond League performance that gets everyone excited. And I'm looking at the Diamond League Stockholm start list. He's not on it. But normally this is what happens, is he'll go to Monaco, run about 142, beat everyone, and get everyone all pumped. Is this finally the year that Nigel Amos wins another medal, and then he flames out with some injury or other issue at the World Championships? He hasn't had that this year. He was only he was second in Rabat, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting for it because normally this is just an annual tradition is the Nigel Amos hype train and then it gets extinguished at the global championship. Yeah. Is he going to fool me again like Bikhil? I always get fooled. I hope not. The one interesting thing is we're talking about 800-meter running. Praise the props to the U.S. women. You know, we're all eight women broke two flat. 36 women in the in the world this year have broken two flat. And I think 13 of those are American. Whereas I was trying to figure out what's 36 for the men. It's 145.09. Do we have any American under 145.09? Did Hopple finally do it? Hopple and Coetch both ran under 145 at USA's. Other results that caught my eye from other championships? The Spanish championships. Mario Garcia Romo took down Adele McCall and Couture in the 1500. He ran 335. I was wondering if this race was set up for him to be fast, like if they had a rabbit or if these other guys agreed to it, because that's going to put him in the world championships. 
He came in ranked 58th in the world, but he's going to get 335. I mean, he's run that before, but he's going to get 1167 points plus 100 bonus points for the win. So he's going to jump up to number 40. Get into Worlds because of that. So congrats to him. And I was actually, I've been spending a lot of time about these ranking points. I mean, the Spanish champs are the same as the U.S. champs, the same as the Kenyan champs, the same as the Mongolian champs in terms of bonus points. But the scoring table, John, really rewards indoor performances. Like if you run a 350 mile indoors, I looked it up. It's 1,272 points. If you run a 350 mile outdoors, and I'm not sure it's even any easier outdoors, it's 1,202. Any harder indoors, it's 1,202 points. So there's a 70 point difference. Yes, sometimes it's it's easier indoors if you're at BU or if you you know you don't have it's cold Wind. weather threats or anything like that. When, yeah, for sure. Oh, one of the things. Speaking of fifteen hundred, he didn't make the team, but John Davis of Illinois finishing second. I thought this was very interesting because you know normally when you're a college kid and you finish second in NCAA's, the shoe companies are going to be snapping at your heels. You know they're going to be lining up to sign you. And I'm not sure that's going to be the case with John Davis because this field was a bit weaker than normal. It was a tactical race. You know, I mean, he'll certainly have some interest, but he's not going to have the interest that, you know, Cole Hawker and Yara Nagus had last year after finishing in the top three at USA's. But I'm, he's not even sure what he's going to do. He said a month ago, he was content that he was just going to wrap up his season with NCAA's USA's. That was going to be it. He was ready to move on. He's already got a job at KPMG, the, the accounting firm in the Bay Area, and was getting ready to take it. But, then, you know, then I talked to him. I'm like, well, are you going to turn pro now? Like, what do you do? And he's sort of like, well, I, got, I don't even know what opportunities are out there. I need to start exploring it. So it's very interesting to me. This was a guy who was content to just retire and move, up, move on to post-collegiate professional life. Just happens to get second at USA's. And now it may have totally changed his life and he's a pro runner for a few years. So I'm fascinated to see what happens to him. But he obviously had a terrific performance at the USA Championships that will have opened some doors. Some might say change his life in a negative way, John. He'll give up the KPMG job and be a running bub at 35 with no job prospects. I'm kidding. But I always say when you die, you can't take the money with you. But sometimes it's fun. You know, I, I want you, John, to do... Uh, some pieces on some of these guys that just, I mean, I guess some of them did make an Olympic team, like Daniel Lincoln made the Olympic team once and it's just like, that's it. I'm going to be a doctor or, you know, sometimes it's perfectly fine to focus on your career. You don't want to have the what if. Like, that's why I got back into running after college. I'm like, how, how do I know that I wouldn't have been great? I, I didn't want to be wondering that when I was old, but I remember when Chris Lukasik made a world championship team. This guy used to, and Alan Webb was hot. He, the people were viewing him as maybe the Webb apparent. And then he just quit, took a job with Airbnb. And I'm like, that's really dumb. What else is he going to be this good in the U.S. at? Now he's fabulously rich because of it. So to each their own, to each their own. Um, Laura Muir also spanked everybody at the British Championships. She won by like five seconds in the 1500, which I know wasn't that loaded. But the second place girl's like a 404 woman. So maybe she's coming into form. Speaking of Lukasik, I'm not sure. Well, I don't know if he's a podcast listener. But I was about to say, unless Phil Knight listens to this podcast, he might be the richest podcast listener. Who knows, actually? But he was like a 
top 15 employee at Airbnb. In terms of Jonathan Davis, what about working like 30 hours a week and training? Like, I think that's something this guy should do. Can KPMG give him a little flexibility? Show that you can have a life and train. Like, I don't know. People go to school and train. Like, I got out of school. I trained. I had a full-time job working 40, 50 hours a week. Trained. I wasn't. And I ended up getting fourth in the country twice. But after I made my first track trials, I'll never forget meeting Mark Wentmore, famed Colorado coach for the first time. said, I think I can make the next Olympics. He's like, don't. You should go get a He's like, sounds like you're really smart. You know, you've got other opportunities. Running's not the end-all, be-all. Just meanwhile, here I am, 22 years later, running a website and running. But you just got to think about your own situation, what you're passionate about. Can you make it work? But think also, yeah, there is life for sure after running. So I, I wouldn't get too carried away about a second place finish in a slow race. Yeah, and I, I don't think the shoe brands will either. I don't think they're going to be saying, oh, you know, here's a huge six-figure contract for the next four years to come run for us. But I do think there's definitely going to be opportunities there if he wants it, and hopefully in a pretty reasonable amount of money. All right. I had another question I wanted to cover with you guys because we've had some great talents in the 800 meters in the high school ranks this year. The number two time of all time on the men's side with Kate Flat running 146.51, and then he almost makes the final at USA's. He's the first guy out. And the women's side, Juliet Whitaker at the USA Junior Championships runs 159.04, dominant run from the front. She breaks the high school record set by Mary Kane in 2013. I'm going to pose it to you guys. If you're in those situations, do you go to college this year? Or do you turn pro? Do you think there's going to be any interest in these athletes? Whitaker is committed to Stanford. Cade Flat is committed to Ole Miss, but his coach, Ryan Van Hoy, just took the job at Cal Poly. What do you do if these if you're these athletes? This isn't that hard. This isn't debatable. Whitaker's going to Stanford. Got a text about her the other day. Her entire family went to the Ivy League. She's smart. You you do that. Hell, you could go pro and still go to Stanford. I mean, either way, you're going to Stanford. And that's just a zero-brainer. You can train on the side and still have Coach, uh, one of the best intermediate coaches in the country. Help me out here, John. J.J. Clark. Coach you. So she's going to Stanford. Kate Flat. I don't make stereotypes about Kentucky, but I don't know how important education is to him. Heard some rumors that he might be going broke. Um, coach left. Go to college in California. I certainly wouldn't be going to Ole Miss unless until I knew who the coach was. Yeah, I, I agree with you on Whitaker for sure. Uh, she's going to step in right away and probably be the best woman in the NCAA, but with how good the women's 800 is in the United States right now, I don't think there's going to be people saying we need, you know, she's not going to be getting huge contract offers. And if she steps right into the pro scene, you know, she might not even make the final. She could, she could, but it's going to be very hard just to make that team and really make an impact in that event. So I think going to the NCAA is a good opportunity for her. I think, you know, she'll take the advantage. They pay for talent, but so she could get a, a nice contract, no doubt. But 
is it going to be obscene amount of money? No. Without they mow there, I mean, that's kind of blocking you from stardom maybe forever, right? Your entire career. They're only, what's the age gap there? Mo was high school class of 2019. Sorry, no, 2020. And Whitaker is class of 2022. So it's a two-year gap. Well, two years of school, but it doesn't mean that they're, I'm look it up right now. All right. Well, on the men's side, yeah, I think flat, if he gets a nice pro deal, that is something to consider. I mean, I don't think he'd be the best guy in the NCAA right away because we had a 143 guy this year. We have Brandon Miller who made the team. Brandon Miller might be coming back. So I think if you get a really nice deal, yeah, maybe take it. But, you know, look at the options out there. If Ole Miss has a coach you think you can succeed under, they still have some, they have Baylor Franklin is coming back, who's a USA finalist. That's a pretty good training partner if you go into Ole Miss. And if you want to go somewhere else, yeah, find a good training opportunity. But I'm, I don't know, unless the money's really big, I think college is usually the right option. I mean, Julia Whitaker's got a great situation if you think about it. J.J. Clark, arguably the top female 800-meter coach ever in America. She can go to Stanford, get a free education. And does anyone know anything about NIL? Is she, you know, could she get make some money too with NIL deals? And I don't know why some shoe companies don't start signing some people themselves to NIL deals. Why aren't shoe companies doing those things? It seems like that's the next frontier. The shoe companies just sign you but you run in college, I guess you'd have to wear the, the Nike stuff at Stanford. But there's ways to make money in college. I mean, who knows, man, what did, uh, what's his name? Archie Manning get to go to UT? Millions, right? I mean, this is track and field, so it's a little bit different. But the NIL thing might have changed the college situation a little bit differently. Cade Flat, the guy looked former podcast guest a couple weeks ago if you guys want to hear it look in the feed and if you're not already subscriber to the podcast just right now go in your podcast feed hit subscribe then go to itunes rate us five stars please or email us if you don't want to give us five stars email us call us one eight four four let's run kid flat i thought he did great this weekend you know he missed the record again by less than a tenth of a second which is crazy that's now three times but he more than held his own Racing the racing the best in the U.S. You know, do what works for you. I, I guess is too simple of an answer in these situations. What would help with him in the college ranks is something he didn't get to experience much this year as a high schooler: is racing experience, getting in the mix there, running against other guys who are close to your ability, rounds, championship finals. You get that if you're running in the SEC and the NCAA. So that might be a benefit, is getting that experience, racing a high level, other guys closer to your ability, and then you turn pro. But I can't see the appeal of turning pro right now. No, I think from, from a development standpoint, the college ranks is the way for him to go. He, I mean, he was relevant sort of at USA's. I was impressed by his actually racing tactics, considering he's probably never been challenged in any hunter recently. Like, in one of the races in the semi prelims, he made a big move before 400. Now, I, I say you only have one move in the 800, but he wanted to get up there, and then he went up and just kept going. I'm like, do not go up halfway and come back. And I thought he had good instincts, but it just gives you goals, to things to win. You can celebrate. You can come a name. 
he can maybe sign some sort of NIL deal. I I think that as a pro, he ends up, I mean, the the prior fastest high schooler, the Hoey brothers all went pro. What have they done? Have they been relevant at all? Answer, no. no. Yeah, I hope those guys got a lot of money. I'm shocked that Adidas, I, I don't know, they weren't, it's not like they were, maybe Adidas just signs on potential as runners because in terms of moving the needle, I don't think they were that popular in high school. It wasn't like a Mary Kane situation. But if they got paid significant amounts of money, I mean, you got to look at your own situation and, and figure that out. But I, I think another big takeaway from USA is, is just you're in running, probably more so than other sports. You can be at the top in just a very short time. And I'm a guy who, you know, quit my job to pursue running. So I, I, I can't tell people to think about life after running very well. But Clayton Murphy, right? What's next for him? I think he could still rebound to be a factor in the level. This, this could be a good thing for him. Missing the worlds, it could be like a Roger Clemens moment when he left the Red Sox. So you're saying he's going to start taking PEDs? No, no, no. I always use that example because... I remember thinking like the guy was done and then he became so good, but I just, just ignore the drug part or another guy who went to pro to high school, Drew Hunter. He ran the 1500. I'm like, why is he running the 15? Like he, and Drew looked great last year, winning the 5k road championships. And he's the guy who's like, look, this is in November. He goes, this means nothing. It matters how you're doing in the summer. He didn't even make the meet in the 5K. So he's at a pivotal point in his career. Cole Hawker, last year's star, won't beat the World Championships in Eugene on his home track. Even Shakari. Good thing for her is hope her agent got non-reduction clauses in that Nike contract. She should be getting paid a ton of money. But nothing's guaranteed in this sport. I mean, golf, all these guys are trying to take the easy paydays, right? problem with running is there's no money and it's even harder to get paid. Look, your point about having, you know, a narrow window is true. And that's what John was talking to me. I think he might have been offline, but Cole Hawker, this is why you, John was saying you go to World Indoors. I know people don't value the indoor gold as much or the indoor metal, but he didn't know he was going to get hurt. Because I guess he could have gone to World Indoors and if he got hurt, people say it's because he raced too much. But he could have had a medal, could have represented Team USA at least once this year. We need to have more than one major. So that's the thing. But you talked about the Hoey brothers not being popular. I was on YouTube yesterday. You guys realize Lexa and Leo have their own YouTube production company? And they're currently in Switzerland training and making videos over there. I'm not sure if it's both brothers or one. There's some guy I didn't recognize. I don't know. Does one brother not look like a young? They're identical twins, Robert. They have similar haircuts? I think the haircuts are slightly different. Okay, these are totally different. I think there's a third guy over there from high school helping out with the YouTube. Looks like they didn't disclose this, but it looks like On flew them to Switzerland because they were rearing an On shoe in one of these videos. And I'm just like, this is crazy. They're like, yeah, we heard training in Switzerland last week here, and then we got to go to Big Bear soon. I'm like... This is pro training at 17. 
They got two altitude stents in June. I said to this, <laughs> I said this in our article I was writing a couple of weeks ago, the Gary Martin one. I said Colin Sullivan trains like a pro, and I guess Weldon's like he was editing it. You know, he doesn't. He goes to class, so I guess it's more like college. Because actually, also college kids are taking like altitude trips over the summer to train. Maybe not to Switzerland, but a lot of groups will go out to Flagstaff or Park City or you know Boulder or that sort of thing for altitude training. All right, a couple other things to hit from it. I mean, you can guys can decide if we want to talk about this again because there were two topics we addressed on our Sunday podcast for supporters club members. Let's run dot com slash subscribe. If you want access to that, you also get Let's Run T-shirt. You get discounts on shoes and gear. All sorts of good benefits. We didn't talk at all about the Lyles versus Knighton 200-meter race, which was one of the races and the moments of USA's. Lyles pointing across area Knighton as he crossed the finish line. And we didn't talk about the buys kind of ruining this meet with reigning world champions running the first two rounds and then just skipping out in the final. And Robert had a rant on that. I just, in general, we want more meets that matter, not less. We want more races that matter, not less. And by letting defending world champions not run these races, we're getting a less important race like or a less fun race. Would the 100-meter final have been better with Christian Coleman? Absolutely. Would the 110 hurdles final have been better with Grant Holloway? Absolutely. There's more on the line with those races if they're in them. And plus, the fans, people pay money to see Grant Holloway run at these meets. You know, you come in, you say Grant Holloway's competing. I'm here. He's one of the most exciting athletes in the sport. To see him back out and not run, especially after he said he was going to run the first three rounds, people are going to be disappointed about that. And I also think the other thing is it's leaving a lane open in the final. USA Finals in the men's 100 and the men's 110 hurdles, and also Nia Ali did this in the women's 100 hurdles, USA Finals are very, very hard to make. It's a big deal for someone to get a lane in those races. And when you make it and then you just scratch, they don't replace them. USATF should do a better job about this too. If someone scratches, USATF needs to get on it immediately and say, hey, fastest non-qualifier, you are now in the final. But it's a bad look for the race when there's a lane empty, and it's unfortunate for the people who actually want to be in there that someone who won that spot is choosing not to take it and not being replaced. We could combine these two topics at once, John. What was one of the biggest, most exciting races? Man's 200. Guess who didn't have to run that race? Noah Lyles. He deserves a lot of props for that. This buy needs to be tossed away. It's insane. I mean, we, we said it best. I think this came out did an American miss the world like 15 years ago? Like, why did they come up with this dumb idea to give a buck? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, maybe if you want to give it to the Diamond League Championship just to make it run the Diamond League final, but even then it's going to, because the rest of the world isn't caring about the U.S. championships and the rest of the world, their championships don't really mean that much. So it's not like compelling drama, but it wipes it out for this meet. I don't know if USA did get decline it. The other thing that shocks me is, I know these guys make, the stars make a lot of money, but wouldn't Grant Holloway want to make an extra? They need up the prize money, but eight thousand dollars for first, like you just want, to just totally, you don't care at all about eight thousand dollars. Did he make several hundred thousand? Grant Holloway is probably one of the few athletes who is making enough that it's not that big a deal to him. But it is kind of, yeah, it is kind of surprising. Well, yeah, we we talked forever about that Lyles thing. I just think 
All right, who's going to win the men's two hundred title? I don't have much doubt on this one. I still feel. I think I'm still feeling Knighton. Same with me. And the thing is, like Noah was very quick to clarify afterwards the gesture. He said it was not intended towards Knighton. He said it was a point to his doubters to show them that he's back, that he's still here. But look, he can say that's the intention. I don't know if Arian Niles is going to. Sorry, Arian Knighton is going to interpret that way. Suddenly, if someone beat me at the line and pointed across my chest, I would feel disrespected by that. And then in the interview after what the race... What do you race, mean, John? We, we get to ignore that. In the interview, he's standing right next to him and said, I, I was behind, but I, I knew he was at top speed. My top speed's better. I do what I do. Win. First of all, if you do what you do, win, Lyles, why didn't you win last year at the Olympics? I love how the people think I'm a winner. Um, yeah, that was, that was, to me, more disrespectful just to say that right in front of him. But, by the way, can we give a shout-out to Joseph Lyles? He broke 20 flat. That, that didn't get any play anywhere. I don't think we even mentioned it in our recap. Yeah, he would have made the team. If it, I mean, if the U.S. wasn't the best in the in the world in this event, you had the Olympic silver medalist Kenny Benerick barely getting onto the team in fourth, 1987. So yeah, Josephus Lyles, great run for him, great meet for him. But yeah, the Lyles thing, look, I love the attitude. I love the track talk, trash talk. I, I mean, if you want to call it trash talk, I love that he's just injecting some drama into this event. We see this in other pro sports and it's fun when it happens in track. Now Knight Knight was already really wanting to win that world title this year, but now to to beat Lyles to do it would be a huge deal for him. And Lyles reminding us, yeah, he's a fantastic athlete. He's been running 19.6. He met, he had COVID when he ran that 19.61 in New York. He, you know, he didn't have any symptoms or anything, but the next day he felt like crap. He missed some training. So then show up at the U.S. Championships, run sub-20 in all three rounds, including 19.67 in the final. That was really good. And I think he might he's only going to be getting better for the Worlds because he's not going to get COVID again and miss any more training. So it's going to be a really great race between two fantastic athletes. And you know, if there's a little bad blood between them, that's that's fine by me. That's exciting for the sport. The sport needs way more of that 200. I mean, we haven't talked about it because on the Supporters Club podcast, we let off about it. We talked about it for probably 30 minutes. It was awesome. Yes, thank you, Noah Lyles, for showing up when you didn't have to. Shocked you guys both totally dismissed his chances for the Worlds. But the other thing I want to know about, we need to have a little more intrigue in the sport. I think you should let athletes pick their lanes for the final. They both had sort of inside lanes. I think Lyles would rather be out in seven. If you win your heat and have the fastest time, you should get the first pick of the lane. Or, or maybe do you want to pick second? Like if somebody picks seven, you can go six or eight. I mean, I don't know. We could figure out a way, right? There's, instead of just kind of randomly assigned, I mean, you know, maybe the top C goes in four and then five, but like, no, I think some people might want to pick a seven. Like for the 400 hurdles, guys would want to do that. So that's a little wrinkle we could throw. Make sports just a little interesting. You know, you could have, especially at Worlds when there's time, you could have like, oh, here's the lane draw. They're discussing what lanes. It's kind of a TV thing or something. Just a little more intrigue. And Robert asked about the buys. Robert, come on. You don't remember why the buys are happened? The 2000 Olympic trials. Maurice Green who I guess he's what world champion in the hundred It's going to face Michael Johnson world champion in the 200 
and the 400 at 200 meters. We had driven to Lake Tahoe between those, the off days. There was betting. No betting on the apps. You had to go to actual casino. We bet on this race. I didn't know enough about the sport, but I loaded up John Michael Johnson. I'm like, he's going to smoke Murray's screen at 200. Bet was probably a lot of money for me at the time, like 100 bucks or something on this thing. They both pull up lame. And I think Michael was like limping towards the line. And Murray's screen's limping towards the line. I'm like, please don't finish because it, it was stated if, if they both didn't finish, the bet was void. So we got our money back. But speaking of such, did anybody place a legal bet on the U.S. championships? If you did, email me. I want to know what sports book this happened at. There will be betting for the world championships for sure. But email me, wejoe.letsrun.com, because I want to know if any sports books offered betting on this thing, because it's crazy. You can bet on Argentine and third division soccer, but you can't bet on this. Well, well then, are you, is that actually the origin of the buy, though? Because... Or do you just like telling that story? Because I know you've told it on the podcast before. And it is a great story. But if that's the origin of the buy, it's bullshit. Because both of those athletes won an individual gold medal at the Olympics that year. Like, okay, they didn't get to run each other against each other in the 200. But it still ended up fine. This is what happens. Is most of the... Be- like, remember Brenda Martinez. Right, she wasn't going to get a buy. But she has a disaster in the 800 in the 2016 trials. It's kind of falls or you know gets bumped out when there's a fall she comes back and makes the team in the 1500 it's exciting you know it's pretty amazing you're right john looking up the stats they recovered in time to win gold medals but there was two months between the trials then and they said in the olympics so you can pull muscle and still get back in two months well what about 2016 kenny harrison everyone's like oh my god she didn't make the U.S. team in the 100 hurdles. And then she breaks the world record in London. And people are like, should she be on the team? Well, at that point in her career, Kenny Harrison had some really real problems with not performing at championships, which have now gone away. And the U.S. still swept the medals in the women's 100 hurdles. Like, this is the whole reason why the Olympic trials are so exciting is because a star might not make the team. There is jeopardy. Like, you have to perform. And look, the Olympics are still going to be awesome, even if you're missing one or two major stars. But the the Olympic trials, if you remove that jeopardy, suddenly you're removing one of the things that makes the Olympic trials the best meet in America every four years. So, yeah, I'm fine with getting rid of the bias. Yes. The, I've always said, what's the problem with track? There's only one meet that really matters, unless you're American, there's two. But by having the bias, you're reminding people, this meet's not that important and bigger meet's more important. And in pro sports, you don't get out of the first round, you're not going to the second round. Yeah, the the Warriors will not get a bye in the first round of next year's playoffs because they're the defending champion. They'll have to win four rounds just like everyone else. Okay, guys, is that it from this week? We do have one Diamond League in Stockholm on Thursday. It is the final Diamond League before the 2022 World Championships in Eugene. I think there's two things we haven't talked about. Okay. Let's go, Robert. There's so much to talk about. We lost it. Sherika Jackson, 2155, 1077. She's the female version of Fred Curley, or Fred Curley's the male version of her. I mean, these people are dropping down and just, just destroying it. 
Twenty-one fifty-five, I think, is third fastest former ever or time ever. Third fastest time ever. I mean, super props to her. And then the other news is my namesake. I mean, how could I forget? By the way, Oregon, Robert Johnson, the coach at Oregon, he's been an assistant for seven years and the head coach for 10. They won 14 titles when he was the head coach there. But only, like only one title in the last five years. Is that right? Something like that. He's out. So Oregon is looking for a new coach. I have not heard anything from the Ducks. They could save money on having to change the names and everything if they want to hire me. My wife, I don't know, would she love it if they offered me five hundred grand? We have to to live in Eugene, though. Wait, Robert, you have to make a bold promise, though. You need to say, I would win an NCAA cross-country title in the next five years if you hire me as the Oregon coach. Do you think you could absolutely. do that? If I'm allowed, if, absolutely. If I'm, am I allowed to just get, I don't, I don't have to spend any scholarships on track? You can do the scholarships on however you want. If you want to okay, give them all the distance. the NIL for the, for the track runners. I'm putting all the money in the scholarships, and I'm getting on a plane to go to Kenya. Absolutely. I guarantee oh, wow. you. So you're, you're just going to go, you're going to go the Kenyan route. No. Get all the international athletes. And- I'm going to try to get the Americans, but I don't have the altitude. So, John, there's no discrimination here. Robert wants the best athletes. Some people only want to favor athletes from America. Oh, yeah. You're going to go the Kenyan route. Well, so why recruit if you're not going to? I mean, I look, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that's your strategy. I'm interested to hear it. That was the other Robert Johnson's route. That was Andy Powell. Andy Powell got a job at Washington because he milked Edward Cheswick for all he's worth. <laughs> all right. I mean, Andy, Andy Cheserek was not the only NCAA champion Andy Powell coached. Speaking of bias, yeah. If an American did what... Can we get a pronunciation ruling here, John? Sharika or Sharika, as Robert says? It's Sharika. Sharika. I mean, is she going to do this at the Worlds? Is she going to pull off the double? I just kind of assumed after last year, Elaine thompson Harrah ran so well. We hadn't seen a season like that ever in the 100. She started off well this year, so I just kind of was like, she's got this thing. You know, can she get the world record, essentially? And now I'm thinking, she's the second best woman in her country. Third. Elaine thompson Hare has not been running well this year, right? I mean, Elaine thompson Hare only runs well in the Olympic years. Did she switch coaches, John? She ran 10.79 to win pre and 10.83 to win Rabat. Those are pretty good. Uh, I Look, here is my takeaway is... Never trust the Jamaican trials. How many times J- Usain Bolt got beat by Johan Blake at the Jamaican trials? And we would say, oh, is this over? And then no. Bolt goes out and smokes okay. him at the Olympics in 2012. Last year, the Jamaican trials. Do you remember who was third in the, Olympic trial, in the Jamaican Olympic trials last year in the 100 meters? And the 200 meters? Elaine Thompson, hurrah. And then she goes on to have one of the greatest sprinting seasons in history. Uh, I think these, this is a confusing variable. I don't know if there's some conspiracy between the Jamaican sprinters to make things as difficult as possible for us media to interpret. But you know, look, we've seen Shelly Ann Fraser Price has run 10 6 two, five, two times already this year. I think Shelly Ann's still the favorite in the 100. Sharika Jackson, after 2155, I mean, 25155 is ins- insanely fast. I think she has to be the favorite in the 200 now. But I don't know. If Elaine Thompson Hurrah just showed up, and blast everyone in the 100 and the 200 like she did last year, would I be shocked? No. I think that there's something about the Jamaican trials is just, it's not a reliable indicator of success at the global champs. 
John, the Jamaican champs, maybe some weird variable. Maybe in the hundred. But like you said, twenty one fifty five. I think she's got to be the favorite for Worlds. I, I guess Abby Steiner ran well, but I mean, that, what, like 0.2 slower. But Sharika, Sharika Jackson, until last year, was a 400-meter runner. Bronze at the Olympics. She's like Fred Crowley, as Robert said. Drops down to the 100 last year, gets the bronze. But in theory, you think, okay, used to be good at the 400, now really good at the 400. The 200 should be the sweet spot. And that has not been the case for Fred Curley. I think 200-meter running, we've seen it. Some people sort of come up, they're sort of specialist. We've seen it more for them. Well, no, Allison Felix, right? That was her career. Until later on, she kind of dabbled at 100 400. But Bolt was a 200-meter specialist. Then he found out he could run the 100. Noah Lyles, 200-meter specialist. Aaron Knighton. So maybe in this case, the 200 is her sweet spot. And she's finally sort of figured figured out that event it'll be interesting I'm, john do you remember that race at, at, in tokyo last year and she gets the bronze in the 100 and then doesn't even make the final out in the first round fourth in the did heat she let up just kind of didn't take it seriously yeah if you're her do you think about skipping the 100 yeah uh i mean no I are you guys crazy i would 1077 is not going to cut it Shirley and fraser price is going to beat her in that race Wait, no, hold on. Well, yeah, she just won the Jamaican trial. She's not going to skip the 100, Robert. There's also more glory winning the 100 what? versus the 200. What? So wait, yeah, no, don't skip it. She didn't. I guess this year she handled the double fine at the Jamaican. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's more I think about why would I... Yeah, yeah there's no conflict. You're, you're, she'll be bored in Eugene if she doesn't do both. Back to this Robert Johnson thing. Guy wins 10 titles, 14 titles in 10 years is out. Some people are like, this is a joke. Shows our sport is a joke. Like, you know, because there's this thing about how he's having the women weigh in on a DEXA scan. And our sport doesn't take performance seriously. And I was thinking about it at first. I was like, you know, see what they're saying. Like the off the track stuff is more important than winning. But then I was like, no, in some ways you could argue this means our sport is being, at Oregon, they do treat it like a legitimate sport. The team was not nearly as good as they were before. Wait, what do you, wait, wait, wait. You mean the last few years have been not nearly as good as the early Robert Johnson years? What are you trying yeah, to say? Without a doubt. There's no doubt about that at a national level. And what I said, and he's burned his bridges. He's not, he's got this other stuff. And I said, look, if, if, if a administration thinks that you're not, you're past your peak in terms of performance and they don't like you and you use up your cap, he's kind of prickly. He's got a big reputation for that. Then, they're going to let you go. And I think if he hadn't done this thing with the weighing and the women liked him better, I think he would have kept his job because I don't think winning is that important there. But he's probably pissed off all the locals like Martin Smith did. He's just more successful than Martin Smith to me in some levels. But how did he burn his bridges? Well, I don't think he tried to ingratiate himself with the, with the local community and that type of stuff. Touchy feelings. The cross country team is not that good. But the, the women's thing, a lot of these women are complaining about it. But also, look at the other sports. People are like, oh, it's not like other sports. I'm like, no, this is just exactly like other sports. And, and everybody's obsessed with race in this country. LSU, what do they just do? They fired their male white football coach 
two years after he won an NCAA title, and he never even had a losing season. Fire, gone. They thought his best days are past him. He's got some off the field shit we don't like. He's gone. And Auburn did that the same thing with um, the guy before Gus Malzone. Two years after winning a title, one losing season, gone. Yeah, it actually might show that Oregon takes treats track like other sports. Whereas a lot of other schools, I mean, any other school, you win 14 national titles in 10 years. That's right, Robert. National titles? I mean, Robert Johnson has been one of the most successful track coaches in the history of our sport. And you can argue, okay, maybe Vin Lanana set things up there, brought him in. But that thing ran tremendously without Lanana in terms of performance on the track. So, Well, I just want to say here, since the Powell's left, Oregon has not been competitive in cross country. Do we think that weighs into it at all? Were they competitive in cross country when the Powell's were there? The women were, but were the men? The men were on the podium in 2015. The men weren't as competitive as the women. The women won the title in 2016 and 2012. But I don't know. I mean, also Ben Thomas has done such a fabulous job with Cole Hawker and Cooper Tier. Yeah. If I'm an Oregon alum, I'm like, oh, this is great. The track, these guys are fabulous. You're putting guys on Olympic teams. I would be happy. I I don't know. It's so hard to do the all-around program. I mean, that's what makes what... I guess even Vin did, John McDonald. It's just so hard to do. Yeah, I mean, look, Oregon, they won the NCAA indoor title last year. And with Ben Thomas, he coached. They won the 800-mile 3K and DMR. It's not like they haven't had some success. They haven't had the... Maybe they were more consistent in the early in the mid-2010s, but they won... An, like, Robert Johnson's last national title was a year ago. Look, what's surprising to me, though, is, well, there's a contract through June, so maybe they can't technically, it doesn't seem that they have anyone lined up. It's I was talking to a top college coach, and you can't tell me they don't already have the pick. And I said, I don't think that they do. I think they were trying to decide what they could do, maybe even debating, could they really hire, fire such a successful minority coach? And they ultimately decided that they could, and they did. Or not fire, but not renew. And the question is, who gets the job? Been a lot of rumors out there. Who's big enough to take this job? I mean, I've heard a couple of things today. Diljeet Taylor, to me, is an obvious name. She's, women aren't supposed to be the directors of BYU because of the Mormon religion. She won the hassle, but she could be the first female coach at Oregon. Super successful. Has charisma, can handle the media, etc. Um, a lot of people have been talking about Dave Smith. I don't know why he'd want the hassle, but his wife is a neuropsychologist professor. She's I think that's better to Oregon. If she really wants to make the move, they could do it because he could handle his organized super coach. But otherwise, you're going to go with somebody young. I mean, maybe you could bring Lana back. No, Robert, we got to talk about the name that is the first name that I've heard in every discussion about this. I don't know whether they're getting a job or not. But I spoke to a lot of people in Eugene, and this name keeps coming up. It's Jerry Schumacher and Elaine and Shalane Flanagan. Well, I heard that rumor too. Of course, I heard Dave Smith first, and I heard that wasn't happening. I heard that rumor, and then I heard that source close to them said, "No, no way." Well, why would Jerry want the hassle of that working job? Well, here's the thing: 
if you bring on Jerry, I think you would have to have either you would have to have someone else be sort of the face of the program, and it could be Shalane, and I think she could do a great job at that. But in terms of like the engaging with the community and all the media duties and everything, I don't think he'd really, or even running the entire program. Like I don't know, I think he'd be the distance coaching part of that. That might get him excited. You know, his kids are grown, so he might be able. He's already based out in Oregon anyway, in Portland, so. I could see that, but yeah, and Tony, like, if they're counting on Jerry to be sort of like, it, it, you know, why why they fired Martin Smith to have someone who interacts with the community more? Jerry's not really, he doesn't like being in the spotlight that much. So that part of it, but in terms, if they want to revive their cross country program, he's the guy. But then, what what do you do with Ben Thomas? Ben Thomas is one of the best middle distance coaches in the country. You're just going to get rid of him for Jerry? It's kind of interesting. Ben may be happy to leave. He may be miserable there with all the pressure. They're not taking that job. Well, why would he want? He would be terrible with that job. I and mean, he would be terrible in terms of the media and all that job entails. So originally I thought that made some sense. Like, if he wanted to get back into coaching, this would be the time to do it because his kids are old. But Shailene, like who, if they could hire an unlimited amount of coaches recruiting, which you can't do, then they could have some, who's going to want to recall all the kids at all night hours of the night Shailene with young kid is going to want to do that. No. So you can get a young coach. You can have a young assistant. Who's just main duty is recruiting Robert. That's, that's pretty feasible to do. Should have hired Van Hoy. John Capriotti, the coach at, where did Van Hoy go? Cal Poly. Yeah. He went John Capriotti, big Nike exec. He put Van Hoy in at his alma mater, where the track is named after him. So maybe maybe Van Hoy will last uh, two months, of, one month at Cal Poly, pull a Vinland Anna, and end up at Oregon. You think they would hire Ryan Van Hoy? They would just promote Ben Thomas if they're going to go that route. I don't know. Robert, Ole Miss did not have a good track program. I think they were last in the SECs, so I don't think they go that way at all. He's the distance coach. He's not the head coach. Well, I'm just saying, you don't hire a distance coach at Ole Miss and make him the head coach at Oregon. No way. I bet a lot of money that doesn't happen. I just don't know who would want this job. It's weird. This is one of the top jobs in the country. I don't know who wants it. Oh, plenty of people want it. But there, yeah, no, there, are, there are some very real drawbacks. And there's a lot of, there's more eyes on you than pretty much any college coach in the country. There's a lot of expectations to deliver. And you're also, like the Oregon head track and field head coach is partially because so many meets are staged in Eugene and at Haywood field. You're also partially responsible for sort of making the sport popular in the United States, or at least there's an expectation from some of the people in Eugene, the fans in Eugene that you do that. And if you're not ready to at least like, that's why I think Diljeet Taylor would be a good fit because she would be someone who would be, She'd be open with the media. She'd be willing but, to be but, exciting. Not, get people excited about I'll it. I'll tell you this about Dale G. Taylor. She's not used to coaching a conference meet at all. They don't even have a conference in BYU. Like, they don't have to worry about that. That's your concern about her? She can't coach a conference meet? I think she'll do just fine. Robert Johnson's won the Pac-12 for like 15 years in a row and it didn't save his job. But it's just, it's just a lot harder job. I don't think a really a young up-and-coming distance coach, you could put him in there. I don't think they're old enough and mature enough to handle Eugene and Nike and all these people. It's just like, I mean, it's like Stanford. It's one of the best jobs in the country, but a lot of people don't want it. 
Eugene has a whole other entity called Tracktown USA that's supposed to be making track popular. So that shouldn't be necessarily the, the entire job of the coach they as well. They might need a new CEO there too. And yeah, with Worlds leaving, I mean, it's going to be different because everyone said, oh, this... Worlds and Eugene was going to make track popular in the U.S. That was a fallacy to begin with. Hopefully we get some momentum from the Worlds. But speaking of Worlds in the USA, John... All three members of this podcast will now be at the World Championships. Robert Johnson is now a credentialed member of the media. Or I'm not sure if he's officially will, but he will be there. I will be there. I think July 19th, all three of us will be there together. There will be one day of overlap. We should blow it out. So somebody want to organize a blowout party. Although Robert, are you moving to Red Eye that night? He's nodding. Uh-oh. I'd have to have a very quick party. But, wow. Well, I, I, I'm looking forward to that. The first, the last time, when's the last time I covered a meet with both of you guys in attendance? It doesn't happen very often. 2016 Olympic trials? Has it really been that long? No, we recently went to a meet together. All three of us. Where was 2017 Worlds, John? Like at Milrose or something. One, 2017 Worlds was London, and Robert was not there. It's pretty rare that... Both of you got maybe well, one of the marathons. Were you guys both in New York for one of the marathons? Yeah, we're always in New York. We're always in New York. I guess the New York City Marathon is the biggest event. One, one thing I was wondering, parting unrelated topic, let's get out of here. But we have all these high school nationals, five of them, Adidas, Nike, you know, all over the country, and ends up being no nationals. I was like, why isn't the USATF junior meet? The meet where you qualify for World Juniors, the actual big high school meet. Now, the problem is USATF doesn't pay for some of these people to fly out there, where some of these shoe companies do pay. But there was a topic about this in the message board. And I like this post. This is my post of the week from CO Colorado Coach. U.S. Under-20 Championships are just another example of the failings of USATF. A completely missed opportunity to promote the sport to the younger generation. U.S. Under-20 should be the national championships the top high school and college freshman every year, especially with spots for international team in the line most years. Instead of Nike, Outdoor National, New Balance, Adidas, and Brooks, this should be the meet for kids want to go to. Instead, this meet seems to take place in almost complete obscurity, and the vast majority of high schoolers have no idea that they exist. I guess it's harder because they're also competing against collegians, but I agree. I kind of get the sentiment, but I don't like... Like the whole point of having a high school nationals is you can crown a high school national champion. And I guess you can do that and just say it's the top highest schooler in each race. But what if the top high school is like sixth in the race? Like the addition of college freshmen just kind of muddles things up there. So how much longer can, can Siegel's keep this million dollar job? I mean, he's, he's been there a long time. And then the world, it seemed like this would be the natural point to leave. But I don't think he can get a million dollar job somewhere else. It's going to be funny if he does. I think he'll spin. Like, the U.S. men are going to win a lot of medals this year after we won none. So they're like, oh, we had a successful world with sold-out crowds, and I got the U.S. men winning all these medals, and then I left. Yeah, I don't see how Max Siegel gets a better job than the one he has. So I don't see him leaving. We're wanting to leave. Okay, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of the podcast. Stockholm Diamond League on Thursday. We'll have a Friday 15 recapping that. We have Peachtree on Monday. Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, July 4th. That should be good. Some decent feels. Bridget Cosguy is going down, the world record holder in the marathon. She's running it. 
And then after that, I think it's probably going to be a little bit of a downtime before World Championships. So we'll start getting excited about that. But yeah, this is a great, great USA meet. Lots of storylines, a lot of interesting stuff to discuss. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next week on the pod. No, we'll see you probably Thursday after the Stockholm Diamond League. Join the Supporters Club now if you want that podcast. Let's run.com slash subscribe. The best club in running.